1980, a researcher stumbled upon letters Arthur Kingsley Porter exchanged with a psychologist named Dr. Havelock Ellis decades earlier, years before his disappearance. Almost half a century later, they provided new insight into the life of an already complex character, an eccentric millionaire academic, who some say lived a lifestyle comparable to Indiana Jones. Arthur Kingsley Porter, who preferred to go by just Kingsley, was gay. His story is a queer story. This information hasn't helped solve the mystery of his disappearance what happened to him when he went missing in 1933. But it has changed almost everything about how he's been remembered, including, in some cases, the facts. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet Arthur Kingsley and Lucy Porter, two millionaire academics living at the turn of the 20th century. Their deeply loving and deeply unconventional marriage endured many storms through the halls of Harvard, the churches of Spain, the emerald shores of Western Ireland through Kingsley's doctor-prescribed affair with a much younger man. Then, in 1933, their relationship ended when Arthur disappeared off a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Now that we know Arthur Kingsley Porter was gay, most accounts of his life and disappearance have heavily emphasized his sexuality. In many respects, they're right to. It's an integral part of his story. But while conducting my research, I started to feel like people were trying to make his life fit a specific kind of queer story, a now standardized narrative of what queer life and love look like. They either paint Kingsley as a tragic martyr to the bigoted society he lived in, or a triumphant figure who overcame and escaped those bigots to find freedom, love, and ultimately, himself. But both of those versions of the story involve twisting the facts to fit tropes, and I'm not interested in that. People are more complicated than that, more resilient, 
more adaptable, more surprising, more flawed. Reducing people to tropes isn't fair to anyone, to Kingsley, or the complicated, multifaceted history of queer life, the real one. So I'm going to stick to the facts, which in this case involves doing things a little differently than I usually do, because the important facts start a long time before Kingsley's disappearance, specifically in 1911, when Kingsley meets a woman named Lucy Bryant Wallace at a New York party for the wealthy and well-connected. Kingsley's 28 years old and already a recognized art historian, specializing in medieval religious architecture. He's tall and handsome, a little reserved, but a good conversationalist when he wants to be. He also comes from old New England money, serious money. He's a millionaire at a time when there are only a couple thousand in the entire country. Thanks to her own inheritance, Lucy's wealthy herself. She's also bustling, intelligent, and far more outgoing than Kingsley. But at 35, she's considered an old maid in her social circle of snobby, old-fashioned New York socialites. They basically consider her too old to ever marry. Kingsley, however, doesn't care about what others say. He and Lucy connect over their love of art and architecture. There's a palpable sense of understanding between them. And for the first time, Kingsley can envision marriage. While the match is surprising to their peers, this is an era that values social status above all else. So when Kingsley starts courting Lucy, high society just shrugs and gives the relationship their stamp of approval, which makes them both very happy. When Kingsley's traveling, he writes to Lucy saying, quote, I wish you knew how constantly you are in my thoughts and how I am anticipating the time when we can travel together. I am always imagining what fun these trips would be were you along. Meanwhile, she writes him, quote, They tell me the finest, noblest, most thoughtful of all the peoples of the earth loves me. I am dippy at the thought, darling. How did it come about? Their affection for each other is palpable. By December 1911, less than a year after they met, they're engaged. By June 1912, they're married. Life for the two of them becomes a shared adventure. And Kingsley was right. They do have such fun, splitting their time between European tours, New York, and Yale, where he takes on a teaching position. They become a team. Lucy keeps their social calendar full for networking and photographs churches and monuments as they trek across Europe. Kingsley then publishes the pictures alongside his collections of his writing. They create book after book, and Kingsley's career as an art historian soars to loftier heights. When he has time, Kingsley even dabbles in playwriting too. Kingsley's research takes him around the world. When they have to be apart, their letters remain as loving as ever. There's no indication that Lucy does anything less than revel in this new chapter of their lives. But it's not all art, love, and first-class trips on transatlantic steamers. 
the First World War keeps the Porter stateside for several years. And in 1918, as the fighting draws to a close, Kingsley's invited to join a panel of experts in assessing the damage to France's medieval monuments. Lucy travels with him through the country's war-ravaged provinces. It's a harrowing sight to behold. So much has been lost. But Lucy and Kingsley face the darkness together, side by side. Two years later, Kingsley accepts a new teaching position at Harvard University. The role officially starts in the fall and requires him to travel to Europe for a few months annually to conduct research. But before Kingsley starts, something happens that impacts the social dynamics of life at Harvard. A student named Cyril Wilcox dies of suicide right after telling his brother George that he was having an affair with a man. Devastated by his brother's death, George blames the tragedy on Cyril's lover. And in grief, he spreads a baseless conspiracy theory that there's a poisonous network of gay men infecting Harvard. George presents his case to university authorities, mostly rumors of students on campus who are or might be gay. And his crusade triggers something called the Secret Court of 1920. Which sounds scary, because it is. Harvard's president at the time, Abbott Lawrence Lowell, authorizes a panel of five administrators to call in and interrogate anyone at Harvard suspected of being gay. They investigate more than 30 men. In the end, eight students are found quote-unquote guilty and expelled. One assistant professor is fired, and a recent graduate is disowned by the university. One of the expelled students follows in Cyril's footsteps and dies of suicide. Now, it was called the secret court for a reason. Few people knew this was happening at the time. In fact, it only received mainstream attention when in 2002, reporters at the Harvard Crimson, a college newspaper, found a box of records pertaining to the trials. They then forced the university to publicly acknowledge the sordid affair. This attracted a lot of attention for obvious reasons. It's a salacious story. A renowned and respected American institution essentially conducted a gay inquisition. But I mention all of this because the secret court has become one of those sensationalized aspects in Kingsley's story. It does play a role. That much is true, but maybe not as directly as it's been suggested in the past. See, by the time Kingsley arrives on campus in 1921, the secret court is over. All that's left are rumors about the interviews, the expulsions, the deaths. If you're queer at Harvard, there's reason to be afraid. President Lowell has made it clear he will not tolerate gay men on his campus. But for Arthur Kingsley Porter and his wife, Lucy, the threat posed by these rumors would have seemed irrelevant at first. First of all, they're a happily married couple. Second of all, everyone at Harvard loves Kingsley. His colleagues respect him. His students rave about his casual, collaborative, and progressive teaching style. And everyone's fascinated by his travels across Europe and the research they produce. 
Only as the years pass does the climate of fear maybe trigger something within Kingsley. In late 1928, he writes a letter to his brother, Lewis, and confides in him that he's struggling with bouts of depression. Lewis writes back, saying, quote, I am distressed to hear that you have been having fits of depression. I always think of you and Lucy as typical Buddhas. You seem to have reached the goal of nirvana, and I find it difficult to imagine depression in connection with either of you. End quote. There's a lot to unravel in Lewis's words, but one thing that really stands out to me is how quickly Lewis transitions out of speaking about Kingsley as an individual and reverts to discussing Kingsley and Lucy together, as if they only exist as a pair. It's also worth noting the contrast between the external perception of Kingsley and his internal reality. Lewis isn't the only person in Kingsley's life to remark on how Kingsley seemed incredibly content, enlightened even. Around this same time, another acquaintance notes how he always seems like he's lost in a wonderful dream, one she doesn't want to disturb him from. Of course, we all know appearances can be deceiving. The only person who knows what Kingsley is feeling is Kingsley, and he knows something is off. So he starts writing texts on psychoanalysis, most of which, following the popularity of Freud's work at the time, place a lot of emphasis on sexuality and repression. This rings true for Kingsley, and sometime around 1929, he has a realization. He's gay. Reading through his writings and reflections, it really doesn't feel like something he ever felt ashamed about or intentionally repressed. It sounds like he just hadn't really considered the possibility before. Now, some of you might think that sounds impossible, but if you do, I'd ask you to remove your 21st century lens. Kingsley didn't grow up with much, if any, exposure to queer culture. But more importantly, even if he was alive today, queerness isn't one thing. Everyone arrives at themselves in different ways. Sexuality is multifaceted, as are people. After Kingsley realizes his sexuality, he doesn't try to hide it from the person he loves most in the world. He immediately tells Lucy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. By 1929, divorce is less taboo in America than it once was. Even in relatively old-fashioned New England circles, like the one Lucy and Kingsley Porter run in, they could reasonably seek divorce. They certainly have the money to make it happen. They're both independently wealthy. But Lucy and Kingsley still love each other. And they love the life they've built together over the past 18 years. So when Kingsley tells Lucy he's sexually attracted to men, 
they apparently address the situation head on, like they have everything else before it. In August 1929, Kingsley considers resigning from Harvard, maybe because he wants time and space to figure out what to do next, or maybe because he's afraid of getting fired. That would be understandable given the trials of the university's secret court happened less than a decade earlier. Kingsley writes to his superiors and tells them he's toying with the idea of stepping away, but they beg him not to. So he agrees to stay on. In the meantime though, Kingsley and Lucy take a trip to Galway in Western Ireland. There they see Glenvay, a 19th century castle set against a backdrop of rolling green mountains and glittering lakes. Perhaps this wild, beautiful landscape feels like the perfect place for the porters to work out their problems, far away from judgment or bigotry. Perhaps they just need an escape. Regardless, they've talked about owning a second home on the far side of the Atlantic for years, and they decide Glenvay is perfect. So they buy it. In October, they return to Harvard. Over the next two years, Glenvay acts as a getaway for the porters. But as if a castle wasn't enough, Kingsley commissions a bare-bones fisherman's cottage to be built on a small island nearby. The island's name is Inish Buffin, and Kingsley loves it. He loves the island, the cottage, and the sea. He writes several plays while he's in Ireland. One of them, Pope Joan, includes the following passage. Quote, we who live inland know nothing of islands. We never know what the sea is like with its spaces, its storms, its sadness, its exultation. It is in islands that there is magic. Heavy-footed dwellers on the mainland never know joy. It is the island dweller whose heart leaps and sings." End quote. Unfortunately, despite the beauty of Ireland, despite the escape it provides, Kingsley remains a heavy-footed mainlander. He's still depressed. Now, today, with so much widespread access to SSRIs and other drug-based psychiatric treatments, it's fairly common for people to assume the depression is a purely chemical condition. But medically, there's a difference between situational depression and major depression, also known as clinical depression. They're considered different types of disorders. Situational depression is an adjustment disorder, while clinical depression is a mood disorder. Situational depression often doesn't require medication. It requires the person to adjust their reality to whatever situation prompted their depressed mood. This could mean changing the situation entirely or simply talking about it with someone you trust. If Kingsley's depression is situational, his situation at its heart hasn't changed much since he first started feeling bouts of deep sadness. At least, not in any meaningful way. Recognizing his sexuality was a major step, but the truth is, neither he nor Lucy knows what to do next. So the porters make a major decision. They seek the help of Dr. Havelock Ellis, a physician, psychologist, and sexologist, and one of the first doctors to study same-sex attraction as something that's innate, 
as opposed to a perversion of the norm. In 1931, about two years after Kingsley first told Lucy, the Porters travel to London to pay him a visit. Dr. Ellis agrees to take Kingsley on as a patient, and before the Porters leave, he suggests an unusual treatment to prevent future troubles in their marriage. He recommends that Kingsley, who's 47 at the time, start a sexual relationship with another patient of his, a 21-year-old aspiring writer named Alan Campbell. Dr. Ellis believes Kingsley's depression stems from a lack of sexual fulfillment and promises his prescribed remedy will improve his mental health. The suggestion certainly represents a departure from the Porter's current status quo, and I'd say even bucks societal norms still in place for marriage today. But Kingsley and Lucy are both open to it. It's a way forward, one they believe doesn't have to subtract from their life. Neither one questions the love and affection they have for each other. The process starts slowly. Dr. Ellis sends Kingsley Allen's manuscript so he can get a sense of the young man. Kingsley reports back that the book and its author intrigue him. Then Dr. Ellis connects them. Meanwhile, Dr. Ellis starts seeing Kingsley regularly. By April 1932, Kingsley says he's feeling a lot better. He writes to Dr. Ellis saying, quote, "'Hearing from you and writing to you have in some way I do not fully understand helped me more than I can hope ever to tell you. If patches of blue sky are now beginning to appear, I know that it is fundamentally your doing.'" Whether it's Dr. Ellis's guidance or the prospect of meeting Alan Campbell one day in person, Kingsley's feeling better, even if he's a little nervous about the latter. In the same April letter, he writes, "'We sail on June 26th and go directly to Glenvay. I should like to invite Campbell to visit us there for a week beginning July 5th, but hesitate, never having seen him. May I leave the invitation in your good hands to pass on to him, unless when you see him, it should seem to you inadvisable.'" By June, the invitation reaches Alan, and in the wild, remote beauty of Glenvay, Kingsley and the young writer begin their relationship, with Lucy right down the hall. Throughout the summer and into the fall, Alan pays several extended visits to Glenvay. In February, he visits Kingsley again, this time at the Porter's home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he basically works as Kingsley's secretary. And this is the point in the Porter's story where contemporary retellings start making a lot of assumptions. Assumptions that are, in my opinion, not supported by the evidence, which consists primarily of letters Kingsley and Allen wrote to Dr. Ellis, plus a few notes Lucy made in her appointment book. So to tell their story as honestly as I can, I'm going to use their own words as much as possible. One common assumption people make about the arrangement between Alan, Kingsley, and Lucy is that it was extremely difficult for Lucy. Now, first, I want to acknowledge that it may very well have been, but the primary evidence for this interpretation comes from one note in Lucy's datebook from early on in their arrangement, which reads, quote, "'Again, the feeling solitude brings. 
perhaps for the fifth or sixth time in my life, things connecting back to childhood and girlhood, end quote. Obviously, this suggests Lucy felt left out, and no wonder. For the first time since her marriage began, an important element of Kingsley's life was rolling ahead without her. But a single feeling of solitude, which could have been fleeting, doesn't mean Lucy lived the rest of her life as a sad, scorned lover. Most evidence suggests Lucy and Alan actually got along really well. Outside of sex, Kingsley, Alan, and Lucy spent most of their time together. Their dynamic was familial. At the beginning of his relationship with Alan, Kingsley writes to Dr. Ellis saying, quote, Alan Campbell arrived Tuesday and left Friday. We both like him. Lucy feels that through fine-grained intuition, he often appears at a rightness that usually is attained only through intellectual striving, her judgment reinforcing my own, which I am quite aware is liable to be unbalanced, means a great deal to me. Our gratitude to you for having put us in touch with Alan is very great. By April, he adds, Lucy seems perhaps happier than ever, and I am sure that in that she couldn't deceive me. As far as the three of us are concerned, the situation is as perfect as anything in this world is likely to be. Meanwhile, Alan writes his own letter to Dr. Ellis, corroborating Kingsley's account. He says, Lucy, Kingsley, and I have very enjoyable times together. There is no discord. Later adding, I feel a truly extraordinary harmony between the three of us. I guess it will be many years before I realize the value of this friendship. There is no pain, no jealousy. Nothing has been lost. Their friends have accepted me. I am almost beginning to believe for myself. The only imperfection is in myself. I want to be alone. Because I have lost Murray. If anything, Alan seems to be the least enthusiastic member of their unconventional menage a trois. He doesn't share Kingsley's romantic or physical attraction, in part because he's still in love with his ex-boyfriend, Murray, who you heard him reference in that letter. We don't have access to Lucy's more private thoughts. She wasn't writing to Dr. Ellis, and the trio didn't discuss their arrangement with anyone else. All we have to go on are the sparse, factual notes in her engagement diary, like return to meet Alan. But without that perspective, with only the information we have, I think it's safe to say all three were ultimately okay with the arrangement. There was love between all three of them, even if it's not the kind of love story we're used to, even if that love wasn't symmetrical. There's no doubt Alan, Lucy, and Kingsley experience each other in vastly different ways. And ultimately, Kingsley gets the most benefit. After a while, his depression lifts. Kingsley writes to Dr. Ellis saying the extreme nervousness of a year ago has entirely disappeared. Spells of depression have continued, but this week I have had none. By April, he says all traces of depression have disappeared. Kingsley is finally happy. But unfortunately, Harvard hasn't changed much in the past 10 plus years. During the spring term of 1933, 
While Alan is living with the Porters in Cambridge, Kingsley catches wind of some rumors. He hears people are talking about Alan, not because Alan has done anything, but because as Kingsley writes to Dr. Ellis, he quote, wears his nature on his sleeve. As in, Alan is more queer presenting than Kingsley. Around the same time, Kingsley gets called in for several meetings at the president of Harvard's house, the same president who authorized the secret court back in 1920, Abbott Lawrence Lowell. There's no surviving record of what happens during these meetings, but it seems likely that Kingsley is finally under suspicion of being gay. The relationship that cured his depression is now threatening to tear his life apart. As the summer of 1933 begins, Arthur Kingsley Porter is worried that he'll be outed as a gay man at Harvard. He's been called into meetings with the president of Harvard, Abbott Lawrence Lowell. Lowell has already ended the careers of multiple professors found out or suspected to be gay. If Kingsley's outed, not only will he too be fired, he and his wife Lucy will likely become social pariahs, especially if anyone catches wind of their unconventional arrangement. But for now, Kingsley has to wait. According to biographer Lucy Costigan, at this point, the council Harvard established to decide his future is split down the middle. Half wants him expelled. The other half supports him. As for how much they know about Kingsley's personal life, I'm not sure. But Kingsley's apparently told the council will make their final decision during the summer. By the end of May, Kingsley's under immense stress. The porters sail to England with Alan. When they land, Alan continues on to Stratford-upon-Avon, presumably to write, and the porters cross over to Ireland. The temporary distance may be a relief for everyone, considering Kingsley's still waiting for the news to strike. It finally does in mid-June. Kingsley receives two letters from a Harvard colleague. Both indicate he's expected back at Harvard in the fall. It's not official confirmation, but it is good news. On June 17th, he writes Dr. Ellis telling him, quote, the situation that so troubled me is relieved. As far as Kingsley's concerned, he's in the clear. He's found a way to have it all. He's never had to worry about money and he's found his dream job at Harvard, a lover in Allen and a best friend and partner in Lucy without sacrificing any social status. There is, of course, the anxiety that comes with being forced to hide a part of your identity. I can't imagine it's easy to have to constantly wonder when the other shoe might drop, if you'll be found out. But in the context of Kingsley's world and circumstances, his future is looking promising. And now it's high summer and beautiful Ireland the perfect time to visit Inishbuffin and revel in the beautiful magic of the sea. On Friday, July 7th, the porters decide to make the short trip and spend the night on the island. It's supposed to be a beautiful one with a full moon. They plan to hurry back the next day though. Their close friend, Irish poet George Russell, is coming to visit Glen Bay. Kingsley sends a cheerful message to him as they head for Inishbuffin. He writes, quote, 
I can't tell you how glad we are you are coming. You and this land are, we feel, the best the world has to offer. Devotedly, Kingsley. He mails the note, steps onto the boat with his wife, and sails five miles off the coast of the mainland. They land at their house to unload, but their trip isn't over. Their cottage is isolated on one side of the island, away from the other 30 or so residents and away from the docks. So after dropping off their things around 3 p.m., the couple hops back on the boat with their local guide, a man named Owen McGee. They travel around to the other side of the island, dock their boat, then walk to their cottage. It's not a difficult trek, especially on a nice summer day. The entirety of Inishbuffin is only 4.6 square miles, which for perspective is 10 times smaller than Hawaii's very smallest island. They're home by 6.30 p.m. and spend a quiet night in the cottage with the full moon overhead. The next morning is less picturesque. Winds howled across the island. After a 9.30 breakfast, Lucy goes on a walk with Owen McGee. Around 10.30, they return, but Kingsley goes back out with McGee. They're expecting high tides, so they need to remove the boat from the water entirely. Kingsley and Lucy make plans to write together once they're finished. As Kingsley leaves, he hands Lucy a pencil and paper in case she wants to get a head start. She spends about 10 minutes doing some housework, then sets out to meet Kingsley at one of the places they usually write. She visits them all, but Kingsley isn't at any of them. Lucy does, however, run into McGee. She asks where Kingsley went after they brought up the boat, but McGee isn't sure, so Lucy keeps looking. By 11.45 a.m., when she runs into McGee again, she gets worried. She's looked everywhere she could on the tiny island, and there's no sign of Kingsley. McGee joins Lucy in her search. Together, they comb the shoreline. Around 3 p.m., they call in more help, a local man named Pat Call. As a storm hits the island, the four of them keep searching. By 7.30 or 8, they've checked every nook and cranny of Inishbuffin multiple times. And Lucy feels sure about what happened. In a terrible twist of fate, right after they solved their troubles, after Kingsley's depression lifted, after he re-secured his spot at Harvard, Kingsley slipped. Somewhere along the craggy cliffs of Inishbuffin, he fell from the coastline and into the sea. Lucy returns to the mainland that night. George Russell, the guest the porters had planned to spend the day with, helps her make the official report. Her husband is missing. The next day, local sea patrollers comb the island's coastline and the surrounding waters. This continues for several days, but they don't find any trace of Kingsley. For Lucy, this is just confirmation of what she already knows. Kingsley is gone. And the police, the locals, everyone agrees, including Alan. Alan arrives at Glenvay two days after the tragedy to help George Russell look after Lucy. Around this time, he writes Dr. Ellis saying, quote, "'Probably you have read in the newspapers of what has happened. Kingsley and Lucy went over to their island Friday and Saturday morning. 
Kingsley was drowned. There was a strong outgoing tide. No one saw the body disappear. The two people who really know Kingsley, his two loves, Alan and Lucy, mourn him together. On September 12, 1933, local authorities hold an official inquest into Kingsley's disappearance. There's no disagreement about what happened, not between Lucy, local islanders, or the Sea Patrol. This is Ireland, an isle of dramatic cliffs and Atlantic tides. Sometimes people fall into the water and are lost. Kingsley's disappearance is officially ruled death by misadventure. But that summer, a newspaper publishes an account of what happened on July 8th that's notably different. They write that Kingsley disappeared from a boat off the coast of Inishbuffin in the midst of a storm. It's most likely a simple reporting error, but the error then gets reprinted across other papers, even though none of the facts back it up. One boat left the island that morning and it was a small fishing vessel. Two people were on it, neither of them Kingsley. But this small factual error has gone on to create a storm of other inaccuracies. There are now people who claim that Lucy, the inquest, and the locals who gave testimony on September 12, 1933 were wrong. That Kingsley didn't slip and fall into the water and drown. He escaped Inishbuffin on a boat to live his life freely in Europe. Others claim he died by suicide. Now, there were a few reported sightings of Kingsley around Europe in the years after his disappearance, but none of them have been verified. And frankly, Kingsley looked like a lot of other white men of his era. With such slim chances he made it off the island that day, those sightings were likely nothing more than wishful thinking. Also, why would he have run off to Europe? Or for that matter, why would he want to die? This is where more misinformation and omissions come into play. Kingsley's story has been popularly told as if he was in agony at the time of his disappearance, still waiting for news from Harvard about his fate. But that just wasn't the case. He felt confident he'd be welcomed back in the fall. He made it through President Lowell's inquisition. Next is Alan's departure from the Porters after they landed in England in May. Like I said, Alan continued on to Stratford-upon-Avon alone. This is sometimes presented as some kind of breakup, a heart-wrenching separation. But there's not a shred of evidence to support that it was anything more than a temporary parting of ways, something Kingsley and Alan did multiple times over the course of their relationship. The Porters visited Alan after they split directions in early July, right before Kingsley disappeared. All of the facts suggest Kingsley was doing really well when he disappeared. To reference his own writing, he may have been a restless traveler, always looking for the freedom of an islander amongst the waves. And he did have a certain amount of ambivalence about remaining a part of Harvard after coming to terms with his sexuality. But he held on to his very privileged, very unconventional life and showed no sign of wanting to let go. He could have divorced Lucy. He had the money to start over, anywhere he wanted, without any complicated subterfuge. 
he could have thrown away his high society life for the freedom of some remote European refuge, with or without Lucy. But that was never what he wanted. Of course, without a body, we'll never know for sure. And we have no insight into what was happening in Kingsley's head on the morning of July 8th, 1933. We don't know if his depression flared up for some unknown reason. But without any other evidence, I stand by Lucy. By Alan. By the Irish authorities. Arthur Kingsley Porter drowned. But I chose to tell this story because so many people disagree. I've talked about misinformation many times in the past, but Kingsley's story represents a perfect example of a certain kind of misinformation. It doesn't come from ill will, but it also doesn't come from a reasonable mistake either. It comes from taking someone's story out of context, trying to fit someone's life into a familiar narrative, one that has nothing to do with the missing person. In the 1980s, when Kingsley and Allen's letters to Dr. Ellis were uncovered, the idea of a gay man who cured his depression through a loving, open marriage and a prescribed sexual relationship with a younger lover sounded impossible. People assumed there couldn't be love in Kingsley's life, in Lucy's. And that only perpetuates the lie that the history of queer people is steeped in oppression and life or death escapes nothing more. But for me, the facts of Kingsley's life paint a far more accurate representation of queer history. One that's about finding joy in spite of circumstance and societal norms, and finding it in their own way on their own terms. And I believe that honoring the missing means telling their stories on their terms, following the facts, even when they tell stories that I'm not used to or are outside my experience. Because we can never know everything or fully understand every perspective. As Kingsley put it, us land dwellers have never felt the wild wind sweeping unbroken from the rim of the world. But we can acknowledge that someone else feels that wind and that all the different ways the world can be experienced are what makes it so beautiful. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 40 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on Arthur Porter Kingsley, among the many sources we used, we found Glenvay Mystery, The Life, Work, and Disappearance of Arthur Kingsley Porter by Lucy Costigan, extremely helpful in our research. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Maggie Edmire and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.